0: This is episode number 148 of The Rising Man Podcast with John Beatty. Without facing off with death, a man can never truly live. What's up, Rising Man family? Welcome back to The Rising Man Podcast. I am your host, Jedi Azuma, and I'm also the founder of The Rising Man Movement for those of you who don't already know. If you're here for your first time today, thank you so much for coming to check out the podcast. If you are a returning guest and you just have been digging the podcast for a month, a year, three years since we started, however long you've been here, I just wanna say thank you. I wanna take a moment to thank all of you guys who've been listening for so long. We've been able to grow the Rising Man podcast tremendously over the past almost three years now and i have just been doing some research on how we've been doing since the beginning. And recently I looked back and found out that in our first month of doing the podcast in which we released, I think it was five episodes that first month, we had somewhere around 500 downloads altogether, and that was a huge push from people in my community supporting us, and people who had been following me and working with me for a while. And last month we had our first month where we had over 8,000 downloads. That's just a tremendous amount of growth having started this from scratch. And it's a huge testament to all of you out there who have believed in the Rising Man movement for this long, who've been spreading the message, letting other men in your communities and in your circles know about this. So I just wanted to express gratitude and say how deeply grateful I am for that. And even more so, our fire circles, our inferno circles, our compass community is just growing with ridiculous abundance. We've been almost doubling our capacity every single year that we've been around. And to me, it's just an indication of what we are doing, what we are creating together. So, thank you for your participation up to this point, and I invite you to continue deepening your journey into the rising man, into becoming a rising man, into becoming the leader, the initiated man that your community needs you to be. So, whether that means stepping into our fire circles, signing up for our next season of Inferno, or jumping on board for a four-day vision fast to to join our next Compass crew in the springtime, whatever that looks like for you, I challenge you to take that step forward today. And I know I remind you guys of this each and every week, but I'm not going to stop because we need more leaders in our world. The future depends on it. The future depends on men who know how to hold that space, who know how to step up and provide for our families and our communities. We just went through a crazy political election process in this country, in the United States. And for me, of all things I realized from that, to me, it illustrated the importance of of nurturing our next generation of leaders. And the Rising Man's focus is focused on developing men to be the leaders we need them to be. So I need you to do your part. I need you to go to risingman.org, find that next level of challenge for you to step up, to become a bigger, more capable, more powerful leader for your community by stepping in and getting more uncomfortable, because that's what it takes. So let me introduce my guest for today. His name is John Beatty. John has climbed to the top of the tallest mountain on every continent, including Mount Everest. More people have orbited in space than have climbed the tallest mountain on every continent. During the nine year adventure, he somehow survived avalanches, pulmonary edema, tribal warfare, and a whole lot of cliff bars. He's a worldwide adventurer who's traveled to 67 countries, written three books, and given live presentations to nearly 1 million live audience members. He's the author of three books. The newest is called The Warrior Challenge, eight quests for boys to grow up with kindness, courage, and grit. In this episode, John and I discussed different forms of rites of passage and reaffirmed why they are so essential to our development from boy to man. John offered great insight into what it looked like for him to design his own rite of passage by climbing the highest peak on each continent. We talked about the importance of facing off with death and developing an appreciation for life. John shared stories about close encounters with death during his adventures out on the seven largest mountains in the world. We talked about how we deal with pain and adversity as boys and how evolving our relationship with pain is part of becoming a man. And lastly, John walked us through the eight quests from his book for helping boys grow up. And he explained why it's important for boys to have mentors on this journey. Without further ado, John Beatty. Okay, Rising Man family, I've got another amazing man joining me this morning, author of The Warrior Challenge, live from Tuscaloosa, Alabama today. (laughs) How you doing, bro?
1: I'm good, Jenny. Great to be here with you.
0: Awesome, man. I appreciate you making time for this conversation. I've been looking forward to it ever since our good friend Blake Fleischhacker introduced us. Shout out to Blake.
1: Big shout to Blake. He's a great guy.
0: Big shout out. Blake was actually on the podcast very early on. I don't know if you knew that, but he came in here. I
1: didn't. I got to listen to that
0: one. It's a good go, one.
1: If you're listening to this, go and hit five stars on that episode and five stars on this one too. Subscribe. And all that's jazz.
0: All that jazz. <laughs> awesome. Man. Well, let's jump right into it because I know you got so much great knowledge to dig into. So the first question I ask every man is, for you, what is the difference between a boy and a man?
1: The difference between a boy and a man is a boy is someone who takes where a man is someone who provides. A uh, boy is somebody who needs to be nurtured, emotionally shown the way, and doesn't create any value, takes value from others in order to sort of position himself. A man is someone who is overflowing from a place where I've got so much value to give that, sure, here, have it, overflowing with value.
0: I love that. I love that polarity of that definition. That's often how I think of it too, that there's a critical moment in a boy or a man's life where he makes that what I call a 180 degree turn where he stops reaching out his hands to take something, but offers his hands out to give back. I found that it's not like a singular moment where that happens, where the clouds part and all of a sudden the sun hits you and you're a man. Would you say that you had a similar experience, that it was more of a progression?
1: Yeah, I think it comes in the different areas of your life. Sometimes you become a man in the physical area of your life. Okay, I'm totally competent. I can, I got my own apartment. You know, I'm 18 years old, 17 years old. I I can put food in my refrigerator. Okay, I'm a man. Well, are you emotionally a man? Are you mentally a man? Are you socially a man yet? It comes in stages, right? In all these different compartments of life.
0: Yeah, I actually, once I started this podcast, we're almost three years in now, and I started with the same question. What's the difference between a boy and a man? And I was genuinely curious about what is that point at which we make that transition, that full embodiment of what it means to be a man And in my research, I decided that there's an essential stage to put in between boy and man, because like you said, I agree, the boy is receiving. He's from the moment that he's born to when he starts to endure this journey or write a passage that we're going to talk about, he's taking, he's receiving from his parents, he's receiving from his community and very little to give back whereas a man is just the opposite, like you said. So I plugged in a, a third stage in the middle there. It's kind of like this chrysalis in between butterfly and caterpillar stage called the man. This journey of tackling and grappling with the give and the receive and trying to figure out the dance between the two. Would you say that that's appropriate for how we look at rites of passage and that journey that a boy has to go on?
1: So that in between stage is the spinning of the 180 is what you're, you're there, arguing yeah. or what you believe. <laughs> there you it's go. the actual the turnaround. And I think for a lot of us that turnaround can be a really slow process. For me, climbing the seven summits, the tallest mountain on every continent, it was a nine-year journey of making this, whoa, slow, slow, slow turnaround. And that was my rite of passage that I believe put me from boy to man in in every aspect. Others, they can have a a three-day journey with someone like you, however long it is. And they're suddenly like, they make that full transformation. And so I don't think there's a time frame on how long that spinning takes, that intermediate period. But yes, absolutely, it's there.
0: Yeah, I like that visual. I've never thought of it that way. That you can't, you don't just... Teleport from facing one direction to the other, there's that spinning phase. So that, that really fits in with the metaphor the way I see it. And sometimes, maybe, I don't know if this was the same for you, you spin and you get to see a glimpse of what it's like to be in that man position. And then you keep spinning back around, back to boy. <laughs> and you end up spinning like a top and getting dizzy at some point.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. It's like trying to balance an egg or something. You like kind of get it there, it hangs for a second, and then it falls over. And then you, you sort of get this vision of it. And then maybe you're scared of it. Maybe it's too much for you to handle. Maybe you're not. actually ready for that step yet or you just need a taste of it just like getting a taste of high altitude and then you come back down you recover you relax you rest and you go forward again absolutely
0: yeah i love that so before we move on from this i want to talk about the boy for a second because i know that a lot of times when we're making a distinction between boy and man Oftentimes we talk about the man in this glowing light of that's, that's the goal. That's the destination of becoming this human that can give back and that the journey of being a boy is about taking and it can, it can get a little bit of a negative glow to it. So what is your perspective on the value that a boy brings to community versus just what he takes?
1: Awesome, awesome perspective to change it up to like the positivity of the boyhood. Yeah. So I'm in a current journey right now to regain some of the lightness and the levity of being a boy, the playfulness the creativity and the idea that there is no, no, you know, boys like try anything without expecting there to be a no. They're just like personal example. I was six years old, I thought I could fly and I stood up on a seven foot tall cement wall with cardboard wings attached to me and I leapt head first, like onto the, thinking like with full faith that I would fly. And of course I just face planted into the grass and like it hurt like hell, I probably could have broken my neck. But that idea of, of course I can do this, why wouldn't I? I'm trying to regain a lot of that. And those are the aspects of boyhood that are positive.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think of adventure when I think of boyhood. Uh, You know, that spirit of adventure that always lives inside of us throughout our lives. You know, I remember I even watched it in my son. My son's five years old and his sense of adventure and imagination is so medicinal for me. Cause I, just like you, once I made that one eighty degree turn and I saw what was in front of me and required of me to be a man, a husband, a father, I just planted my feet in the cement and I kind of or in the sand, and then I poured cement on each one of my feet and said, "This is their direction I need to face." <laughs> and my son is constantly trying to break the cement from from my feet and get me to turn around and spin the other direction. You know,
1: I would imagine having a son is just as instructive about being a man as as a relationship. Like it's, it's another level of adding polarity. Is that an accurate guess? I'm not a father, so I'm learning from you here.
0: Totally. Well, and we talk a lot about boy here on the show, you know, because there's the negative element of the boy, one who doesn't know how to handle and be with his emotions, right? His emotions just pour out of him. And I think it's important to be vulnerable and to express emotions so it doesn't bottle up in us. But if I did that as a man, the way my son does as a boy, it'd be really messy. And it it would be really scary for my family to see me just unraveling emotionally all the time. So I think it's important to have places and spaces and context for how we do that once we are men, but we still need to be able to do that, right? Otherwise, that still water of emotion becomes toxic, becomes poisonous and stagnant. And so being able to move that energy is essential. And my son, he reminds me, you know, he reminds me and stirs up that emotion in me by the way that he's being, but I also get to choose how and when and where I, I express that in a healthy way. So boys are so important in this journey. You know, every, I do a lot of work with the medicine wheel. Are you familiar, familiar with the medicine wheel and, and Native American teachings?
1: Lay it on me, like get it down as though I were a, a total newbie to it.
0: Yeah, awesome, man. So so the medicine wheel is an ancient tool. I like to think of it as a compass or a map so, you think of the four cardinal directions: you've got north, south, east, and west. And each quadrant represents different things. It can represent the directions, it represents the seasons of life. In the east is birth, infancy, new life coming into the planet. The, the south, sunrise. Yeah. Exactly. The sunrise, right? Exactly. So, that's another mm-hmm. layer of this metaphor. The south is like midday, childhood, boyhood, and all its glory running out, playing in the sun all day long, the summertime. And then the West is where we encounter this passage from childhood into adulthood. Literally the Western gate, the darkness, the sunset, it's, you know, dark is beginning to roll in and it's synonymous with a lot of the shadows that we encounter in that part of our life where when we're embarking on this rite of passage and making this movement from boyhood into manhood, it can become it can become difficult, it become treacherous to face off with those shadows. And so that's the West. And then the North is adulthood, elderhood. You know, you think of white snow-capped mountains. This is where the winter season is rolling in and you're giving your gift fully back to your people because you've navigated through the wilderness of the rite of passage in adolescence. So that's kind of like a a flyby. There's so many layers to the medicine wheel. But I bring that in because we say that every part of that wheel is important. If you took out a pie wedge of that wheel, it wouldn't roll around and wouldn't spin anymore. It It would be empty. There would be a break in the hoop, as we say. And so just bringing more context to the importance of boyhood and where it plays a role in community. Without that, we'd be pretty dry, pretty boring folks.
1: You know, throughout all different cultures, they come up with something similar based on what they have around them. And my culture was the one of mountaineering. And I created a medicine wheel of my own based on mountaineering without even knowing it until you just explained medicine wheel. So I show up to a climb. And, you know, we're out for planning 16 days to two months. I mean, big, huge, long expeditions. And the East is when you first start. Like the airplane lands, it drops you off and it flies off. And you're kind of like a baby crying. It's like the sunrise. It's like, oh my gosh, oh, there's all this new energy. I'm nervous Do it? I bring the right stuff. And you're you're in this boyhood stage. And then you sort of settle in and you hit the South in the medicine wheel format where you're, all right, I got this. I've got my equipment with me. I've got a rhythm. We're good to go. The West is what I would call the summit because this is when you're sort of at your, your most potent or your strongest. I made it. You're there. You're celebrating with all the guys, your crew, the team, this is awesome. And then the North is when you're on your descent uh, on your way back down and you're tired, you're ready to call it quits. I think that climbing mountains are a little mini life of their own. And throughout this whole process, you get to inject personalities of what's needed throughout the course of a life but it's shrunk into a 2 week long or a 6 week long period so you can test out what am i going to be like when i'm old and haggard what am i going to be like when i want to bring this young fresh energy what am i going to be like when i need to bring my a game on summit night and there's no quitting there's no apologies there's like it's just get it done all these different times are needed which we need throughout the course of a life but it's com- it's compressed and it's such a cool thing and when you describe the medicine wheel, I'm just like, I'm climbing with you right now. That's the climbing expedition you're describing.
0: That's awesome, man. I love the parallels and, and you're correct too. You know, there are cultures all over the world from climbing culture to traditional indigenous cultures. They all have a reference point for how they navigate life and how they navigate the journey from birth to death. And so that's cool, man. I never heard the mountaineering version of that. It did make me think about the role of adventure and what that plays in in this journey to becoming a man. And I think adventure is synonymous with encountering and diving into the unknown and that's, that's just what you experience when you go on any kind of journey, whether you're summiting Mount Everest or you're going out on a two-day backpacking adventure and you, and you don't know where you're going, you'd never been there before, it reveals to you how you show up in times of unknown, which I think is, I think is essential for being able to show up as a man and be a provider and protector for your community. So you're quite the adventurer, man. You have quite the resume, you know, I talked about it in the intro. Everybody knows it's pretty incredible, man. Seven summits on seven continents. Tell us a little bit about what role that played in your journey to becoming a man.
1: The seven summits journey was my own rite of passage and it was a nine year long journey. And I didn't know why I was starting it. I just thought, Hey guys, talking to my like good climbing buddies, I started as a rock climber. Let's go climb the tallest mountain in South America. That sounds fun. And I got them just, I mean, we were all on board and we went and we got our asses handed to it. I was 20, gosh, that was 2008.
0: I was 26. 26. Okay. Yep. So that's when this all started. Nice. Uh-huh.
1: And we show up there and had no clue what we were doing. We carried like 90 pound packs in overweight as could be. I remember crossing this river barefoot and like puncturing my feet in this icy cold glacier water, just in extreme pain carrying this pack, like walking across it because we didn't want to get our boots wet, having no clue like what we were doing. And there was a storm that later after, uh, across that river, get up to camp. And then it all started unfolding of how serious this mountain was. First real big thing that happened was a guy that we hiked in with attempted to climb a route that he wasn't ready for. He fell and passed away during the fall. Two days later, a storm hit that ended up killing three who were, were in very close proximity. So I, we saw up close and personal how real the mountains were and kind of like was this what I call this wake up smack. And I think that a lot of guys, especially in today's culture, need that moment where you're kind of slapped across the face proverbially. Say, hey, man, it's time to wake up. Like you're hearing something serious. And that doesn't need to be in some mountaineering adventure. It could be a divorce, it could be a financial hardship, it could be a something happens with your family, it could be a death in the family, just something that's intense or potentially traumatic that makes you realize you gotta step up your game here. And that's what mountains did for me. And we didn't summit, I get back down, it pissed me off. And so I trained like crazy, I went and climbed in Alaska, climbed in Washington state, taking courses, summited Denali, which is another one of the seven summits up in Alaska. I'm thinking, okay, now I'm ready. Went to Kilimanjaro, I summited Mont Blanc in France, went to Elbrus in Russia, having these crazy adventures, meeting people from all around the world, and went back to Aconcagua, Failed again. I'm like, you're kidding. This time I get pulmonary edema. My lungs fill with fluids, and I had to get helicoptered off the mountain. I almost passed away myself this time. Gosh, still this freaking mountain in South America. I can't get it. I go climb several other mountains around the United States, give it another shot. We go and we summit. And after I got that one, I was like, all right, I'm ready. I went to Everest successful. After a two month climb, went to Karsten's pyramid, which is in Indonesia. It got kind of trapped in like a tribal warfare, but still summited and then went to Antarctica and climbed in 30 degree weather. And that was the full circle of the seven summits themselves. And throughout this whole process, I've realized there's nothing that can shake me like Uh, Rather, there's nothing that can derail me. I can be shaken. The train can be wobbly, if we're going to use that as an analogy. But the only person who's allowed to derail me is myself, no matter what. Earth throws at me, weather throws at me, people throw at me, finances throw at me. Throughout all this, I realized, and I fully believe, I'm the only one that gets to choose whether I'm derailed or not, and I get to choose what value I bring to the world. And it was through the mountains that I learned that. And I think that goes back to our definition of what it is to be a man and why the mountains made me into the guy I am today.
0: Wow, man. I mean, I know there's so much packed into all of those experiences. (laughs) There's a lot of stories (laughs) in there. So let's rewind for a second because I want to talk a bit for a minute about this encounter with death. Because as you were talking about that, it reminded me of the first time that I encountered death. I was dating a girlfriend of mine. I was, let's see must've been 17 years old. And I'd had family members pass away, but I'd never actually been there. And she had an uncle who was passing away from cancer. I was in the hospital room where he went, the moment he passed away, when they took him off life support and his whole family was standing around him. And it was a really humbling moment for me, you know, to be that close to death. I think that in our society, death is something that people are taken away from the community for, or it happens in hospitals or in nursing homes or usually overnight and especially children are not brought around that. I think, at least in my family and where I grew up, my family thought it was too scary for a kid to be around death. And and I don't know what's, you know, I really don't know what the right answer to this is, but I know that I didn't have an appreciation for life until I actually saw the passing of it, until I actually experienced somebody going from life into the afterworld. And then experiencing and confronting my own experiences, I had a couple of close encounters The first of which being when I was an undergrad in college, we almost had a head-on collision with a drunk driver, you know, last minute maneuver, and we just clipped each other instead of head-on. It would have surely been disastrous. And then another time when I was, summiting my own peak out in Colorado, one of the 14ers, yeah. Mount Wilson, I think it was called. It was just an incredible journey. And, and we summited in the summertime and in monsoon season, and we barely made it to the top just before noon. And we saw these black clouds rolling in. So we were running for our lives down the mountain, lightning crashing behind us. And I don't know how close to Did death I was. By lightning. yeah, But I felt it. I felt like, wow, that, that could have been the end of me right there. That could have been the end of the story. So I just want to talk a little bit more about that because for you and what you said there, man, just witnessing somebody fall from a climb, like, wow, that's a very unique experience of death. And also for people on your, in your expedition to have been lost in a storm and to be so close to that, what was the impact that that had on you as you're going through this adventure and journey of becoming a man yourself?
1: Death has a massive, I've been up close and personal with 16 people who have passed away at this point and The first was a car accident that was a close friend of mine. I wasn't there for that one, but that was as a teenager, what set the stage for my framing of death. That is something that's to be hidden, to be talked about, to be kind of dealt with privately and not in community. When I was 21, there was a DUI where I was working at at a job and a guy pulled out of the bar that we were working at and he got into what would have been the correct lane of traffic. But because there was construction, it was the wrong lane. And he pulled the wheel, flipped the car and crushed and was killed on impact. That one, I was that was the first up close and personal for. Those two are what I brought to Aconcagua. This framing of, if you cry about these things, back at the, actually, let me rewind just a bit. Back at that story where the guy flipped his car. I went home that night and I was crying. I was like, I just saw this guy pass away. And my girlfriend at the time saw me crying. And she's, as soon as I walk in the door, she's like, Quit being a little bitch. That was the messaging that I got, which was very similar to the messaging I got as a high school student. You know, and I'm upset about this friend of mine who's been killed. People see it and they don't ask, hey, what's going on? Let's work through this together, like, let's be friends here. Like the messaging is just don't reveal any pain. And so I took that to the mountains. And when I saw all this happening, I'm like, I'm gonna be a tough and gruff mountaineering guy that's just gonna stick my ice axe into the summit everywhere. I'm not gonna reveal any pain. I'm gonna be as tough as can be. And so I bottled that up and I didn't talk about it. I didn't reveal that uh, what was going on inside. As it progressed, as I climbed more mountains and went with this toxic mindset, climbing more, it came to a culminating point after climbing Everest where nine people passed away that season. We were there. One of whom I was up close and personal with, I saw him on his last breath. And it was a similar moment to you in that hospital ward, seeing your girlfriend's family member pass away from cancer. It was him being left behind from his his expedition team, and I encountered him on his last breath when he's frozen into the ice, and I couldn't find his name in the moment, and I said goodbye to him, and every I, guess, I said a prayer for him in every religion I could think of, hoping one of them would match his faith, and and he took his last breath, and all of these after that that Everest experience resulted in post traumatic stress disorder, and it's through the the healing of that that I came to peace with death, which is where I think we should just start with. So that's my long winded answer of saying, boys should know like from childhood, death is a part of life. Like we come from nothing and we go back to nothing. I firmly believe that there's three things only in the world that are guaranteed. You're born, you grow and you die. That's it. You gotta be at peace with all of those and you don't know when you're gonna be born and you can't control when you're gonna die. So the only thing we have is to grow. And unless you have these two balancing points of your birth and your death, you won't be able to effectively grow. You can't deny that death will ever happen and grow.
0: Yeah, man. It's it's a scary thing for me to think of because I know the things that I had to go through on my journey to becoming a man. And it makes me afraid for when my son's going to have to encounter them because- I would hate for him to have that experience of being the one that, that fell while he was taking risks, while he was pushing his edge and seeing what he was made of to be, to have his life seemingly cut short. That's that's scary for a father totally. to think about it. But I also know that it's essential. I know that it's an important part of that journey for him. He'll never know what he's capable of. He'll never know what he's here to give back to his community if he doesn't take some of those risks. And Do you
1: talk to him about death? Do you say like, Hey, this is a real thing and these are the dangers and this is what it means from your family's perspective. Can you can you tell me about that?
0: Yeah, you know, he's been and this is the interesting thing. I think that children are closer to having a relationship with death than any of us because in my belief going back to that medicine wheel, where life ends is exactly where it begins again. So, the smallest of our of our people, the youngest of our people are the ones who are closest to that journey and we get farther away from it, the more we walk in this life. So he's been fascinated with death ever since he was a kid, or I mean, really ever since he was born. And when things would die, I mean, remember one time we had a crow that had just dropped dead in our backyard and he was really fascinated by it. And so instead of shielding him from it or telling him to stay away, it was this conversation of, you know, this is one of our relatives here whose life came to an end. This, this may have been somebody's mother or father or brother or sister and, or son or daughter. And what do you think we should do about it? And I kid you not man, almost naturally he's like, "Well, let's let's say some prayers. You know, let's say some things for for this creature here." And then I offered to, you know, say, "Hey, why don't we bury it in the backyard and we'll give a little burial to it and honoring." And he really understood that. And the conversation of death is something that I think I mean, he's 5 years old. I remember I was terrified of death. My grandfather, who I was closest to, at 5 passed away when I was 5 years old, and it it gave me this really dark scary painful experience of what death was and i don't know what it would be like if that happened for my son right now but i know that there's an interest and a curiosity and a reverence for death that he has already at five years old just because we talk about it and we're not afraid of that conversation with him
1: your story about the crow reminded me of being a, a witness to a wedding last year about the same time and the day before the wedding we're on the beach and that we see this baby whale humpback like beached and it's flailing around trying to get off. It's back in the water. It's in about a foot deep of water. And we see all the other, the whale's family out in the water flailing and moaning and singing songs and trying to give direction to the baby whale. But the baby whale can't find its way back because it's so shallow it's stuck. And we're there trying to push it back in. And there's this community is what I'm getting at of whales that say like, all of us together here are grieving this potential death of this child of ours. And we're all trying to like push and then the whale's fighting against us. And it's like this really terrifying thing to like want to help this whale's life, but it's a baby is several tons heavier than you. And you're like, am I going to get injured here? And finally the tide comes back in and the whale's able to like, we can help it back into the water. It gets back in the water and swims off, but contrast that with the way that, most families end up dealing with with death. It's like, don't express it to your friends. Don't really reveal what's going on with the pain. And that's that's such a destructive thing. And it's so unnatural, especially contrasted with past cultures. Somebody died in the past, that person grieving would go out in public and rip off their clothing, tearing their their clothing literally off of their body because they were in that much agony. And it was appropriate to show that and others would then support. If you're grieving, there would be this audible wailing. You read ancient texts of almost every religion, wailing of a widow or the person in pain is just grieving so loudly that the entire community is awake and there with that person. And now it's completely the opposite where we're not we just deny that it's there and say, okay, go deal with it. That's gross. Get away.
0: Yeah. And I've seen so many adults, especially where I grew up on the East coast, maybe it's an East coast thing, but people who become completely unraveled by the loss of a family number and, and almost to the point of never recovering and going down that path of addiction and numbing that tunes out the emotional experience instead of diving deeper into it. And I think this is a good moment to pivot into this conversation of vulnerability and, and the relevance that it has with being a man. You know, before we started recording, I asked you, what was that what was that message you really want to convey? And you said the, the importance of dealing with inner pain and having what I heard was being able to be vulnerable, but also having a solution at the end of that vulnerability, somewhere to go with it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Sure. Of course. This is really exciting for me. I think that most guys have some degree of inner pain that is undealt with. And the way that we continue our method of not dealing is by using one of three methods. And that is toughness, like grit it out, tough it out, don't express any inner pain. Niceness is the second one, which has become such a kind of spineless, wishy-washy guy that you are just so kind to everyone that they accept you for whatever, you know, you just cover it up. And then the last one is what you mentioned already, numbing it finding whatever substance that makes you feel best, that makes you forget that it's there. None of these actually address the issue and solve and heal the pain. And so the thing that I'm excited to dive in with you is how can a guy like find the right people to be vulnerable with, as opposed to being a sob story, like on the bus and talking to somebody next to them and saying like, here's all the crap that's going on in my life and and dragging everyone down around them. And I believe there is a balance there. And, and especially in the context of a relationship, do you talk to your partner or your lover about every negative thing that's going on in your life and end up just like appearing totally weak? And what's the right degree to maintain attraction? So all these things, I'm excited to go there with you.
0: Yeah, man. Well, for me, this is where I get to bring in the word masculinity and the difference between masculine and feminine. I think the feminine part of any human, any entity is the part of us that does feel emotions freely and is able to express them freely, almost in an unfiltered, uncontained manner, because that's part of who we are. We're emotional beings, our emotions allow us to connect to one another. When you see somebody in pain, your empathic ability as a human can connect to that pain, even if it's a pain unrelated in detail to what you've been through, you can feel sorrow. Everybody knows sadness, everybody knows fear, and when you see that in somebody else, you can experience that with them too. It creates relationship, creates connection. And the masculine part of that for me is on the other side of that emotional processing, finding resolution or a solution to the source of your pain. Maybe it is just getting it out and then moving beyond it, you know, not getting stuck in the first stage of the grieving process or the painful processing, but moving towards a solution afterwards. And for me, that solution has always been in in community with men, you know, men who, who are able to witness and hold a container for emotions to pour out. I think that's what the masculine does for the feminine naturally. And then at some point pivoting towards, you know, we see you, we feel you, love you, bro. And what do you want to do about it? What do you want to do about that pain? What are you going to do with that pain that you're expressing right now? Are you, are you just going to sit there in the mud? or are you gonna find a way to get yourself out of it? And I think the, you know, I don't like the word toxic masculine. I think it's gotten too many shades of negativity around it. And But if we think of that toxic experience, it's getting stuck, right? I think of, when we talk about water, still water is poisonous. So if that emotion doesn't continue moving towards something else, that's when it becomes a problem.
1: I'm really curious about why you say that a guy needs to be around other men in order to do this? Why the gender difference there?
0: Yeah. And I don't think it's exclusive to that. I think it's just a really important starting point because of what we said earlier, right? The macho, don't show your feelings, you know, case in point when your girlfriend said, stop being a bitch, when you came home and you wanted to share that emotion, a lot of times people just aren't capable of holding a full emotional expression like that. And in my experience, in my relationships with women, there's an interest and a desire to be supportive, but there's also a simultaneous need for safety. And a lot of times I think women, children, for the most part, have a vested interest in their safety. Like if it's my wife and I just emotionally dump on her and I'm just in a spiral, she's not gonna feel very safe and therefore she's not gonna be able to support me in that. Sometimes she can, but what I've found is being in a space with men who are grounded, who are able to contain that emotion and and make space and room for it because they also know they've been there before. They're like, hey man, I know, I know the rest of the world is not safe for you to pour it out, but this place is. That's the difference. And if a guy hasn't experienced that yet, hasn't really seen what it feels like to be in that container with other guys who can just look back at you and nod their head and, and be like, I get it, I get it, yeah. Go there, go deeper, go farther, go further than you have because this is a place that can hold it. That's the difference for me.
1: On an expedition, I choose very clearly who I'm going to go with. And I've thought, what are my standards for choosing the teammates who I go with. And I'm very, very clear about this. And the first rule is this person has to improve my life in some way, like they gotta be really fun, like enjoyable to be around, right? that's my first standard. I can't spend 16 days with somebody if it's like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? I'm with this person still. The second standard is they have to be technically competent. And the third standard is they have to be open enough to communicate when something is not right because if they aren't willing to say, hey, my fingertips are cold or my back is hurting or I need to stop for some food right now, then I can't, they block my ability to step in to help. And same in reverse, if I can't ask them for those same needs, which happened to all of us on the mountain, then the the expedition falls apart. Those are my standards for guys in my life as well. If I don't have all three of those things, somebody who's competent at what they do, really fun to be around and somebody who's willing to say like, this is when it hurts, but, but not let's wallow in that. Let's fix it. Like you said, then that person doesn't get into my closest inner circle. So those are my standards. I'm curious what your standards are of how you teach. How can a guy find that group for him?
0: Uh, Well, that's brilliant. It actually just reminds me of something I got from my men's team. And I love that you brought the word team into this too. We could talk about that a little bit in a minute. But for me, you just define the three dimensions of men that we talk about on my men's team and in my men's circle, the curly element, like curly from the three stooges, the guy that can be fun and silly and lighthearted. I mean, you're climbing a mountain, it's going to be painful. There's going to be times where you're encountering death and you got to be able to lighten it up at some point. Otherwise you just don't survive the journey, whether that's a mountain or you we were just talking about life, right? If, if it's so serious all the time and and I've been guilty of that myself. I've been the serious guy. I've had to learn how to be more curly and bring that to the table. So totally, man, keeping those people around who give you a good belly laugh, as my dad would say. And then the other one is that the Clint, the Clint Eastwood, right? The guy who's edgy, who's direct, who's decisive, who's not gonna let anything go by the wayside, I think is that that guardian, that protector that you described, being a guardian of yourself and being able to, like you said, be competent, Enough to bring your skills to the table and also to make sure that the standards are high, that, hey, you can't come on this journey if you don't if you're not able to pull your weight because it's going to affect the safety of the whole team. Then the vulnerability, right? I mean, I heard vulnerability and that to me, the third dimension is Gandhi, you know, the one who sees a higher perspective that's tuned into his emotions and able to express honestly from his heart without fear or shame or blame attached to it. So that's actually a really useful tool that I bring into my men's circles is like, how can you be more of a three-dimensional man? Because usually every one of us is short in one of those dimensions, right? We're either strong in one or two, but there's the other one that we're not as strong in. And for me, it was curly. I wonder if which one of those was most challenging for you.
1: I think getting the Clint Eastwood style level of competence and confidence especially was the hard one for me. You know, mountaineering was a brand new thing when I started when I was in my mid-20s. And even though I think that my technical skill level increased quickly. My confidence in that technical skill didn't make me come across like the gunslinger or like, sure, I'm standing in the middle of the street, come at me. It was more like I was hiding on the rooftop. Like I'll take my shot and be good at it when the moment comes. But I wasn't re- like ready to be that like badass standing there, like come at it, bring it on. I wasn't quite, that was the one that was hard for me.
0: Okay. Another l- level of Clint Eastwood is being able to be edgy. You know, have, have you ever had to tell a guy, hey, you're not ready for this. You're not ready for this adventure. Or, Hey, you got to turn around and go back. Cause you're not that, that being confronting with each other as men is another thing we work on. Is that,
1: yeah, I've turned some people around on mountains and I've also had to turn myself around on mountains and had to bring the edge against myself. Like you didn't train enough hard for this, or you're having this issue that will compound if you keep going and Doing it for somebody else is one thing. Doing it for yourself is a whole different level of edgy.
0: Oh, man. Yeah, I think it's worlds more difficult, especially when you think of what goes, I can imagine what goes into planning a, a summit to Everest, right? Just the time, the energy, the resources to get onto that path and then to have to turn around and say, you know what, live to climb another day. How do you make that decision? How do, you, how do you do that with yourself? I had to make that decision. I was
1: on summit night and my oxygen was leaking. And I'm like two hours from the summit, I'm running out of air. And my guide, uh, Sherpa, knew Rugi Alzin Sherpa, who was there with me every step of the way, says so like, we can't do this. We got to turn around. And I knew that fewer than a hundred people had ever climbed without oxygen and successfully because most of the others pass away. My life is on the line right now. And there is no rescue. And I started turning, we started walking back. And fortunately, this uh, Western guy, his name is Justin Murley, he shows up out of nowhere. He like comes up from behind this rock, he just appears, it was magic. And he's like, congratulations, you made it to the top. Cause he sees me coming down. And he's like, uh, I'm like, I didn't make it. He says, oh, let me check out what's going on with your oxygen. And he takes the regulator off of the bottle, dips it into his tea, takes that tea, wet regulator out and screws it back under the oxygen. I'm like, this guy's been at altitude way too long. He's crazy. What is he doing? <laughs> this is nuts. We're like, this guy's, this isn't going to work. He's wasting my time. And we watch as the freezing, expanding T seals the leak, right? Because water expands when it freezes. So it seals that leak. He says, get up to the summit, get your photos, get back down. But there was a moment of about 15 minutes where I had chosen to turn my back on a year of preparation, $50,000 that I had dropped on the climb and two months of actually there climbing. And saying there's something bigger than touching a cold rock in the middle of the sky. And those were more impactful 15 minutes than perhaps any others on the entirety of the climb.
0: Wow. Wow, man. That's, there's a lot of good medicine in there, man. I mean, right there, right. Talk about the journey from becoming a boy to a man, right? What does a boy do in that situation? It's just like, let's do it. Reckless abandon. Like let's go for it. And wow, man, I I could just imagine how old were you in that moment when that happened? I was 31. Wow. Wow, man. What a, what a unique and important part of your journey to have that moment for yourself. And then it worked out, right? To still be and able it to get worked there. out. It's like, learn the lesson and you get to go summit. Yeah. it's like, cool. Best of both worlds. That's amazing, man. So as we're starting to get closer to time, I want to make sure that we have some room to talk about the amazing book that you've put together for boys, teenagers, adolescents, the warrior challenge. Uh, just, just tell us a little bit about that. Why did you create that for boys in the first place? Why do we need that?
1: I recognize that climbing the seven summits was my rite of passage. And I, as we've talked about, and I did not think that I needed to go through a nine-year journey without any clear guidance other than what I stumbled across. And when I got back down and I kind of realized that guys deal with their pain by numbing, by toughing it out, or by being so nice, I saw that I wasn't alone in this. You know, when I kind of lifted my ostrich brain from the sand and quit worried about myself and was like, okay, now I'm ready to provide and look after others. I started looking around and seeing Other, Almost every other guy I come across is doing the same thing in some way or another, whether it's mountains or not. And I'm thinking culturally in the past, there was a clear definition of what it meant to be a man and the skills that required socially and competence wise to keep your people safe and to look after yourself. Now that doesn't exist. There's no clear path to be a man. And so I wrote this book for that age group of really 10 to 16 year old boys after a boy is hit puberty. This is the book for him. And it's the most badass adventurers I've ever heard of or could find doing their like traditionally most manly feat ever. And so the reader is in their shoes. But in order to succeed at each of these eight quests, that reader has to embody the values that that guy had and that is what creates a competent man in today's culture appropriate for our world.
0: That's beautiful, man. I love that you created a tool, an instrument to give back to these younger generations because I've worked with 10 to 16 year olds for the majority of my adult life, going all the way back to when I was in college, I was volunteering down at the community center and they're so desperate for good men to come through and spend time with these boys because there's nothing, you know? There's there's nothing else for them. There, it's like a it's like they just put on the blinders and say go run out into pasture and hopefully you'll come back as a good man 10 years from now. And so I love that you created that. I was hoping you could walk us a little bit more through the mechanics of what, what is it? So, you said embodying these traits. How does a boy do that by reading the book? What do you get them engaged with?
1: Well, the ideal would be that a warrior guide goes through the book with the young man. So, if you're a, a father, if you're a grandfather, if you're a aunt or uncle, or if you're a mother, even go through this book with your son and be that example for him. So, the way that he actually gains these traits challenge one, he's confronted by a Maasai warrior to hunt a lion and he has this real life rite of passage experience and we pause and then it's me speaking to the reader here's how what it means to step up as a man in today's culture obviously hunting a lion isn't going to do anything for a guy in today's world at least in western culture but what does it mean to figure out what your lion is today and how do you choose that you're gonna act at a higher level than what society has given you as a blueprint or a lack of a blueprint we should say challenge two is all about uh, self-awareness. And I teach that by taking the reader on Danny Wei's journey, where he jumped over the Great Wall of China on a skateboard. Like this, like, oh my gosh, you're suspended in midair over the Great Wall of China. You're 70 feet up hitting this quarter pipe on the other end of it. How do you get yourself to observe your body, watch your breath, and be in that moment? Challenge 3 your off off-road racing in uh, Baja, Mexico, learning how to set values for yourself. Challenge four, you're escaping from a communist country, learning how to set boundaries. Challenge five, it's all about teammates. You're Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgeson climbing the Donwall in Yosemite. Challenge six, you're Ernest Shackleton exploring in Antarctica about learning grit and resilience. Challenge seven, you're Terry Crews speaking to the United States Senate about sexual assaults. Challenge eight, You are Robert Smalls escaping from the Confederate South to earn your freedom. And by living out these adventures, simply by getting into these stories is how humans change. That's how humans have changed forever is by getting into stories. That's how the Bible has worked. That's how the Bhagavad Gita has worked. That's how the Quran has worked. Every religious text tells stories because that's what we remember and that's what we emulate. And that's what I created for young men today, these awesome stories that teach these traits.
0: I love that, man. I love that. And to give a context and framework of the journey of becoming a man to boys at large in the society is such a service because that's not even spoken about, right? Most people, I have to define what a rite of passage is for them because they don't even know. They're like, oh, write a passage. Is that like something where you go and walk around by yourself for a while? You know, there's (laughs) there's no context or framework for it. So the fact that you're creating that and then setting up these boys at the age of 16 to go out and seek that adventure that we talked about here today, whatever that is, right, it doesn't have to be climbing the seven summits. It could be. It could also be going out and spending time in the wilderness by yourself with a guide, but I think the last thing I want to nail home here is just the value and importance of having community in that process. I know that you ventured out on a journey and at least from the surface, a lot of it looks like a solo expedition, right? It's it's your adventure climbing these summits. But I, I can only imagine that you had the supportive team and community and mentors along the way in order for you to complete that, right?
1: Every single climb, I had support from people back home. I had friends who were in my same position on a mountain. I had guides who were I guess you could say in front of me leading the way. And I had people who I was helping out sometimes in the capacity of a guide, but oftentimes just a less experienced climber who I was kind of given tips to as well. And I was a part of this, this climbing world. And so to say like this photograph that we all have of us on top of the summit solo holding the ice axe up, that's fake. That's not real. Uh, Like the real moment is the team photograph at base camp where you're all there together and, everyone's kind of on even playing ground or even level. That's to me how I remember my expeditions, not the solo dude on the summit.
0: Right. I love that, man. And even the solo shot on the summit, someone was taking that photo for you.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That's not set up on a tripod. Yeah, exactly. And selfies are lame. So of course... (laughs)
0: <laughs> awesome, man. Well, wow. It's been a beautiful conversation. I really appreciate everywhere we've got to go here and, and the work that you brought into the world for this, this critical transition from boy to man and the role that your, your work and your story is playing in that. Uh, so thank you for doing that. I want to ask you a couple of quick rapid fire questions before Let's we wrap do it. up here. Come on, bring it on. All right. So what is one thing you've learned in all of your adventures as a man that you wish you knew back when you were 18?
1: That I don't have anything to prove.
0: That's really powerful to hear from a guy who's climbed seven of the biggest summits in the world. I love that. Uh, And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? Integrity. Love that. Last but not least, where can people come to find you, follow you, buy your book? Where do you want to send people?
1: Thank you. Well, if anybody has a young man in their life, go to Amazon and search for the warrior challenge. And this is the book that that kid needs to have. If you have a son, if you have a grandson, you got a nephew, this is the book that will change his life. If you want to make a difference in the world and in that young man's life, this book will do it. I promise that. So it's called The Warrior Challenge. It's the bright red cover. If you'd like to watch any of my climbing expedition documentaries, or if you'd like to take any of my courses, then you can go to johnbede.com, J-O-H-N-B-E-E-D-E.com. It's also where you can get info about my keynote speaking services virtual keynotes right now until live events happen again. And feel free to reach out. I would love to, love to chat with anybody who's interested in chatting.
0: Awesome, man. Well, we'll definitely make sure we put the links to all of those inside the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out. I'm definitely going to go and get myself a copy of your book so I can go through that with my son. He's still a little young for some of that, but, uh, already warming up the, already warming it up for him because I know that that's something that really means a lot to me is to take him on that journey. So John, man, amazing to have you here on the show. Thank you for bringing your wisdom and your energy and sharing your stories about adventure and becoming a man. I look forward to catching up with you further down the pipe and seeing what else we can drop into.
1: Likewise, it's been a real joy and thanks for having me.
0: All right, fam, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It was great to drop in with John and just so inspired by his journey and what he took on at a young age because he knew internally that there was something that he needed to do to challenge himself, to prepare himself for the rigors of life. Something I think that so many of us men can relate to and oftentimes don't know where to go to find that. And so for those of you guys who are feeling that same itch inside and recognize you haven't had that experience quite like what John described here, go to risingman.org because that's what we provide. That's our mission. Our mission is to initiate a whole generation of men. So if you're on the outside looking in, wanting to become an initiated man, go check it out and find a way to become a big part of it today. And while you're there, check out all the show notes that we provide on our website, risingman.org. Links and resources for every episode are living there. So go check it out. Subscribe to us wherever you're listening to the podcast. Hit us with those five-star reviews and ratings because it does help us to get in front of more men. And it's been working. We got more men from all over the world tuning in each and every week. So thank you. Thank you for doing your part. Check us out on Instagram at Rising Man Movement. Give us a follow. Give us a like on some of our comments, on some of our Posts and share them up with your community because that's another great way to spread the word. And go check out our YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash the rising man movement. We got big plans for the YouTube channel going into 2021. And currently we're always posting our Monday morning meditations there as well. So go take a look. Shout out to my power team, Sean Rowan, Julian Ryan, Mark, and Roy. Thank you guys each and every week for everything you guys are doing. The only way that Rising Man continues to grow is because of you guys, the backbone, the vertebrae of this movement. I appreciate each and every one of you. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.